1: Hey, I've got a question for you. Why do bad ideas stick around long after they've been debunked to oblivion? I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I think it's important. Take the idea that technology is changing exponentially or at an increasing rate. By no defensible measure is technology in general improving at an exponential rate. In fact, by some measures, the pace of technological change has flattened or even declined since the 1970s. Even the famous Moore's Law of speedy exponential improvements in computer chips, which was never a good model for technology in general, has basically come to an end. Yet even though people in technology studies have beat the idea of exponential technological change to death, I can almost guarantee that I will still have some student or podcast interviewer or somebody bring it up to me in the next six months. Or take the idea of innovation campuses, a fad at universities at the moment. No research has demonstrated that innovation campuses lead to measurable increases of innovation, economic growth, or any other significant and worthwhile public goal. But how many universities will announce new innovation campuses next year? Five? Seven? It won't be zero unless the recession that seems to be looming really sets in and kicks our asses. So really, why do bad ideas stick around? Well, we can give a range of explanations. We might try to explain it from the individual level. For instance, we might say that we are sinful creatures who go for seductive but false ideas. Or on the other extreme, we can make it an outcome of some kind of social determinism. For instance, in some readings, and some would say unfair readings, of French philosopher Michel Foucault, it can seem like language, including its lousy ideas, speaks us, that we are ventriloquized by our time. I recently read a book that I thought was one of the neatest and most compelling explorations of what I'll call the zombie bad ideas question I have ever encountered. The book is University of Maryland Information Study Professor Daniel Green's The Promise of Access, Technology, Inequality, and the Political Economy of Hope. In some ways, Dan's book is a history and ethnography of the idea of the digital divide, the gap between the computing and internet haves and have-nots. But at a deeper level, it's a wonderful examination of how individuals and organizations become magnetically drawn to sets of ideas, even though those ideas truly, truly, demonstrably, truly suck. I think you'll see I had a blast talking with Dan. I hope you enjoy our wild and wide-ranging conversation. Get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
0: Thank you, Lee. Really happy to be here.
1: So, dude, The Promise of Access is a great book, and there are so many good things to say about it. How did you come to write this thing, and what were you trying to do with it?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, so this book started as my dissertation in American Studies, and I was originally, you know, really just trying to write a pretty boring book about, uh, the digital divide, which, you know, those words have changed. Like we've gone from digital divide to like digital inclusion, um, to the STEM gap, to this demand that we should learn to code. But the, you know, one of the things, especially the history chapter of the book does is show that this is the same kind of basic, um, social argument all the way through. And, you know, in the early 2010s, and I think this is still the case, most like digital divide research was, uh, survey based Moment in time kind yep. of stuff, you know, how many computers and how good are people at using them? Uh, and there wasn't much longitudinal or, or institutional work that followed people around, see how they engaged with the labor market, that kind of thing. Oh. Uh, so I just, you know, very simply proposed, you know, let's, let's compare and contrast people on different sides of the digital divide. Mm-hmm. You know, I still bought into that language of there being like two different economies, oh, two different worlds for so two different communities. Yeah. Um, and we'll see how their relationships with their devices change over time, how they gain and lose jobs. Um, this was in the wake of the 2008 recession. So I was very interested in people trying to recover and, and pivot. Um, but I was also a former social worker who mainly worked in reentry Uh, helping people um, look for housing and employment uh, after they got out of either uh, prison or or mental hospitals. And, you know, so I I knew where to go um, and to see like two classes with different relationships to information technology hanging out. You know, I go to the library, I go to school and places like that. and. You know, what became very obvious when talking to people just about like their stuff or about like the process of finding Wi-Fi over the course of the day is like this very basic point that like, obviously, librarians and patrons are not in two separate economies. (laughs) Obviously, like we are not trying to send skills and tools across the ocean to a different world so that people can join us in the good life. Hmm. Obviously wealth and poverty require each other. I mean, this is one of the most like kind of basic Marxist insights, right? Is that wealth creates poverty. Um, You need someone uh, for a functioning capitalist economy. You need someone to give orders and someone to take them. Um, These different sides are always in relationship to each other. So it was never fair to talk about people as um, maybe catching up to the other side because they were always connected and further i noticed that like obviously there's a million other ways to talk about poverty besides lack of skills lack of tech yeah 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 so how did this become the one way Mm -hmm. and what i landed on was to focus on these institutions instead the places like schools like libraries like startups that connected what we usually refer to as different sides of the labor market yeah. because it was really in those institutions, the place that do the work of social reproduction, the places that teach us how to live under capitalism, how to, how to seek out the labor market and survive in it. It's those places that give us these terms. Yep. Let's say like, this is what you need to do to survive. These are the good people who have the knowledge in their heads. These are the bad people who don't have it yet. I mean, that's what I do as a teacher, right? Like, you know, we have all these like fancy pedagogy theories, but at the end of the day, what people are going into debt for is to come to me, you know, white guy with too many degrees. I have ideas in my head, I give you those ideas and then hopefully you get a good job. You know, I, 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 you know we know it's much more complicated than that, but that's the baseline assumption yep. for higher education. So instead of writing a book um, comparing people across the so-called digital divide, I wanted to write a book instead eventually about why do we think of poverty that way? Yeah. Why do we think that technology and skills can solve the problem of poverty? Why do we all feel that we need to learn to code or else risk starvation? Yeah. And eventually the explanation that I landed on is really focused on these institutional politics. We, I, I talk about how, um, Places like schools and libraries, these institutions of social reproduction, are teaching us the rules of the game, but they're also trying to keep themselves alive. Yeah. Because under the sort of fiscal austerity oh, totally. that has marked out the last like 40 years mm-hmm. of, um, you know, local governance, these are eminently local institutions, especially libraries. Uh, and the kind of political illegitimation that has come with it, you know, who needs a library? We've got Wikipedia. Uh, Those things mean that these places are under a lot of stress. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough political support. uh, And all of the other institutions around them that aren't staffed by guys with guns have been cut to shreds. So every teacher is also a nurse, translator, social worker, job coach, real estate agent, whatever. Yeah. And under that kind of pressure, you are desperate to get the money you need, to get the political support you need, yeah. and to make your really complicated job much simpler. So this idea, what I call the access doctrine, the idea that, you know, you get the right tools, the right skills, you will survive economic uncertainty. That idea is spoken into life by these institutions in order to keep themselves alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they stays, they survive, they keep going um, because the, that idea gets attention from politicians. It draws much needed grants, especially from places that do grant making right now, which is like the Gates institution, Google apps for education, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and they make these really complicated, stressed out jobs, much simpler, you know? So I, yeah. I don't think any like librarian I talked to, for example, w- Believed that yeah, you know, solving the homelessness crisis in D.C. is as simple as like making sure everyone has a laptop. No one believed that. But at the end of the day, the library was effectively the largest homeless day shelter in the city, and they did not know how to deal with the issue of, for example, like people sleeping in the library. There's right. no other public space. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no place for people to hang out. That's a very complicated questions. Librarians want to create a public space. They want to care for people but they have all these other demands. And once they start orienting their job around, this is a workplace, this is where you train, this is where you learn how to be in an office. That makes that complicated question of, are you able to sleep much simpler? And I just say, nope, you're not being productive, kick you out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it started as a fairly, the book started as a really simple story uh, and became much more this thing about institutional politics and a much, frankly, bigger story about how we understand how to get to the good life, yeah, in the present capitalist economy.
1: Yeah, man, we're gonna have a lot of fun. There's like so much for us to talk about here. Uh, you know, before we uh, kind of like get into some of the big stuff, I was um, I was interested at, ab- about this background of you being a social worker. Uh, I worked in psychiatric hospitals for five years of my life. I wasn't as I would didn't have a degree, so I wasn't a social worker. I was just a lowly orderly but um anyway you know i just wondered about that part of your life uh, and you know kind of like what you know how you got into that and then how you transitioned to grad school into american studies tell me that
0: yeah so i um it's honestly like a it's a pretty not not a huge philosophical shift more along um you know the the different jobs that you get along the way yeah uh so i i was a Psychology undergrad, and was very interested in um, you know in direct service and, and yeah. doing um, doing psych work and not doing it with what we call the worried well, um, but instead with you know with people in distress who really need help. And so I started working um, first as a, a general kind of uh, you know um, supervising like group houses kind of situation, and then spent most of my time working in what we call a job coach role Hmm. and job coaches are this, this became pretty popular in the last 20 years or so of, um, community based supposedly evidence-based, um, clinical social work where you have like wraparound services that provide everything somebody needs. So like our clinic in the DC suburbs, um, provided, uh, residential support, psychiatric support, um, therapy support, uh, you know, group activities, um, someone to help out with addiction. And then there was always somebody on someone's care team that helped them get back into the labor market Yeah, because, you know, one of the really important, um, you know, it was both looked on as like an important thing for socialization in Western social work. Like, you know, you get so much identity and purpose from your job, you should be focused on getting a job, oh, which yeah. is a problem in among itself. But, um, you know, it was also, frankly, for certain kinds of support, yeah. Um, and this is more so in some states than others, a requirement, right? Like you really, you have to be yeah, looking yeah, yeah. for a job in order to receive certain kinds of care. Right. Um, so eventually the care teams started to have someone specifically, you know, in that role and, You know, in the lead up to an immediate fallout from the 2008 recession, Mm. it, um, you know, really forced a pretty serious kind of moral confrontation with the terms of that job. You know, because on the one hand, you know, even without that specific, um, you know, context of the crash, uh, it's, you know, I'm seeing all this. hope about digital technology falling flat where, you know, I'm I'm working with folks who uh, have been institutionalized in some form or another, often for decades, and they get out. And the story that I've been told all my life is that the internet will connect them to global labor markets. Those skills will bear fruit. Um, That's the thing that we need to do is very much important to our clinic. Uh, And, you know, instead, what do we see is like, you need An internet connection, Mm -hmm. a fair degree of internet literacy, um, to apply for jobs that themselves require no use of a computer whatsoever. So, you know, like a three hour electronic application to work at CVS stocking shelves. Right. And that's, you know, that's a poll tax. Like that's, that's, that's really just a way to limit applicants, um, uh, from a certain, you know, uh, race class ability, uh. And, and so it just, you know, that I couldn't explain that. I couldn't explain why that was happening besides, you know, base cruelty. And then the recession, you know, even though it was somewhat gentler in in the DC area than in other places, you know, really forced a a moral confrontation with like that whole kind of Protestant work ethic that, that very much drives psych care in the U S where like, why am I forcing people to look for work when right now they need to focus on their recovery? Yeah, you know totally. why? Why am I? And in some places, it really was just like ticking the box of uh, okay, let's let's just try applying for five right, jobs right. a month. Like we're not gonna actually go for them. If if they apply, we just need to do that so that we can bill it to Medicaid or whatever. Totally. Um yeah. And. So I also got very interested in, you know, why do good institutions or institutions that describe themselves as good do bad things? Yeah. Because you know, there's clearly something going on there yes. that's not just, uh, we're confused. We have stupid ideas in our head. There There's something about like the scripts that we've been provided that doesn't match the real world. And nonetheless, that script persists. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think I, there is definitely another uh, life in which I, you know, pursued my original career goal of being a therapist. Um, but mostly like I was applying to grad school and applied to a couple different ones. I didn't want to leave the DC area because my wife was working here. Yeah. Um and so i mostly applied to clinical and counseling programs then one of my letter writers that i had ta for an undergrad was like you know you really like doing these kind of theory and research classes apply to one kind of like yeah. interdisciplinary social science program i had no idea what that meant so i applied to the program he got his phd from in american studies yeah. and uh then around visitation time where i was weighing these different offers and considering my career path like you know i had i dealt with the very serious human tragedies that come from working in mental health and poverty, which is like, you know, the course of a month, three or four of my um, clients died. uh, And like, you know, it was a coincidence. Uh, And you know, that made me really reassess what I was, where I was going. And yeah, man, I, I frankly went for a desk job at the exact same. My wife switched career tracks and went to a much more direct service job. So wow. now she's a nurse and I'm a teacher. And back <laughs> then, like I was a clinical social worker and she was uh, like a nonprofit fundraiser. Um, so we, yeah. you know, we still have the whole package. It's just in a kind of a different setup.
1: <laughs> um, I, I want to jump in. So I was going to leave this till later, but um, you've brought it up twice now in various ways. Um... And so why not just go for it? So part of part of what I'm interested in uh, is, and this is totally selfish, uh, what I'm going to ask you now for my own purposes, but I'm interested in how you think about like ideas that perpetuate on even when like, you know, they're like debunked or like, yeah. they almost seem to like have a force of their own at times. And the reason I'm asking you this, is I'm, I'm giving a talk in like a week at a, a Christian study center here at Virginia Tech. And I'm looking at like, Christian and secular authors who are critics of technology and saying like, there is a conversation to be had here about like different backgrounds and how they bear on this issue. But the, the, to, the thinkers I'm looking at are like a lull or we could say like Illich too. I mean, though they're different, <laughs> yeah. but like, you know, those kind of Catholic types and mm-hmm. then like the Frankfurt school or something like that, you know, instrumental reason, or we could do Heider or we just do, you know, something that seems more secular. And but my problem with, like, if we take a lull and... And sorry, this setup's long, but I want to get into it with you. So the problem for me is when we take, like, the Frankfurt School or a lull or whatever, is that it hangs at this level of generality that I find to be not helpful very often. You know, like, they're so rarely carrying with, like, actual examples to, like, give us, you know, like, concrete instances of how this plans out and how ideology works and stuff like that, right? Um... And so, but I think STS, I was thinking about your book today and I was thinking about like Christo Sims' book, um, mm-hmm. you know, The Disruptive Fixation or Morgan Ames' book or The Charisma Machine on the One Laptop for child. I feel like this is something people are dealing with. I don't think we have necessarily like a replacement model, you know, or like a whole of like something that we can just port into it. But like, how do you think about like the force of ideas that live on, you know, and, and human lives, you know, and agency and things like that? Which seems to be no, essential like I mean, to your it, question,
0: right? It is it is absolutely essential to the question. I mean, it's really the it's the thing that drives this entire book is, is like why do we stick to this script that we know doesn't work? Like I like I mean at this point, like, hey, you should just learn to code is right. a joke. But it is also something that is very seriously said. So like last yeah. summer when um Gina Raimondo, commerce secretary, was uh looking at some of like, you know, the crazy employment numbers that were coming out of the recovery from the pandemic. Yeah. It was like in May or something. Um, she was talking about all those like help wanted signs that the, you know, petty bourgeois dictators were complaining about, you know, <laughs> yeah. cause no one was, no one was working at IHOP or whatever. Yeah. And, and she's at a press conference and she says very seriously, like, well, it, it appears that not enough people <laughs> use the pandemic as a time to, um, learn new skills Uh, and that is like could not be farther from the truth of the debate that we're having like it is like they're they're not dealing with uh a shortage of of candidates they're dealing with people who don't want to work those shit jobs yeah like it is just it is just does not match the facts at all it's just a reflex like it's yeah. just something you have to say because you have no other ideas. Right. And this is, you know, I, I think this is true in the narrow sense of, of the issues that we're talking about here, but also like a, a much more general sense of like fin de siecle neoliberalism post-2008 where there yeah. just, there are no new ideas. Yes. You know, there is, its there is just a zombie politics where we have nothing new. Yeah, like no yeah. one has, has come up with like a new model for how things work. I mean, I, I think there are like some things from the left, like the way that we are, are talking about like abolition, for example, now, or, yeah. or the green new deal are, are yeah. different from what has talked about before, but those are not, you know, what's getting debated in the state house. Um right. And you know I think we see that technologically too like I I very much take the point like um that like Jason Smith or Aaron Benenev makes where like you know really what new technology has come out in the last 12 years? Yeah. like what what is like genuinely changed yeah, no bullshit. that wasn't yeah. present yeah. in the 21st century. So so I, I think this is a, a general problem for the, the current political economic client. Yeah. Um and I I very much appreciate the, um, the work Morgan and, and Christo have done with the, their two excellent books that I, I am, um, very much thinking about is like to my eternal chagrin that I wasn't able to talk about Christo's book more in particular. I had like a long kind of comparative note about it in the beginning of the chapter, yeah. in the beginning of the intro that I just, yeah, yeah that's just how it happens. Yeah. Um, but we're going to do an event together ah. at, um, Forest this fall that'll hopefully be, um where we can work some of this stuff out Um, Uh because I I do think my approach is genuinely different from what they are. um, And that like, I am not trying to uh, explain again why this is a bad idea. Uh I think there have been many people who are much smarter than me that have explained why learn to code doesn't solve poverty.
1: Yeah. You know, Virginia,
0: Virginia Eubanks, Peter Capelli, you know, uh, Mark Warshower, like there's a lot of people. Real smart. That's fine. Keeps happening. Um, I want to w- instead explain why we were addicted to this, why yeah. it survives. And I don't do so at either the um, level of ideas, this kind of um, yep. reformist fixation that uh, Christo talks about, which is correct. Like, anthropologically, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, or this, uh, I guess, kind of... Um, inventor mindset um that uh morgan is talking about which again is anthropologically correct it is what's happening uh but rather i think like from the empirical material in the book and from our everyday lives like there are plenty of people who do not drink the kool-aid the but who nonetheless keep carrying this stuff out and that yeah. doesn't really work with either of those models so instead oh. i needed to provide a more um political solution and yeah. so you know in, t- in terms of your question about like how I think about this yeah. thing, is in part how I think about all of my work about technology and STS, which is yeah. like it has I, and this may not be super productive for my career in the long term. I very rarely seek out um, tech focused theories or tech focused worldviews uh-huh. to explain technical phenomenon. Yeah. I, I for the most part I think that the Um, tech literature that we have developed to talk about this stuff is focused on the tech in itself, yes. which is its own kind of dangerous abstraction, totally, rather than the capitalist totality in which it sits. Yeah. Um, so there's a way that we get sucked into the t- the hype too. <sighs> something that you're you're very good on, and that we end up just refuting the shitty powerpoints instead of talking about what's actually real yeah. in the world. Um, so I am always very much fixated on um, you know this book is a story about poverty management. It's just yeah. that technology takes a very special role in the American neoliberal imagination. Um, if I'm talking about, like I'm working on a paper about, um, the international labor market for the gig economy with a grad student right now, and we're not for the most part reading anything about Uber, we're mostly reading about like the informal labor debates of the seventies and eighties, which nice. are just you know, re- repeating again yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I think that's the first thing would be to consider this in the capitalist totality. Like, what, what mm. is the role of that particular technology or story about that technology within the larger system? Um, and then, two, I focus it on um, political institutions. You know, in, in yeah. this way, like, the most important theorist for this book is not anyone who really gave a shit about technology, it's, it's Gramsci. Um, because I'm, I'm really, what I'm interested in is this process of um, constructing common sense that supports mm. hegemony. And hegemony is not as, you know, American cultural studies would usually have it, a process of propaganda, right? Hegemony is a process of, you know, one class coming to power through alliances with other classes and being able to substitute its needs for broader social needs. And we could think about something like the five dollar a day wage hundred years ago. Um, you know, accomplishing a similar role where yep. you know people are indebted to a particular model of industrial development, um, even if it's one that like literally chews them up and spits them out. Uh, but it's not a trick. Like people know that job sucks. They just start to see themselves yeah. as part of a Fordist coalition because of that. Um, and so in this book, I, I very much think about it as a process of like a new class. Of what we called Atari Democrats emerging in the nineteen eighties to become the face of neoliberalism, um, New Labour accomplished something sort of similar in the UK, yeah. and they were responding to particular economic conditions, you know, the long stagnation that followed nineteen seventy three, um, and they were responding to particular political, political con- conditions, you know, the Democrats have not held the White House for a long time with like the you know minor interregnum yeah. of of Carter. Um, And they were dealing with like a, you know, a broad political dissatisfaction with what was going on. Like they're, you know, I I think by the early 90s when Clinton and Gore come to power, I mean, most people had realized like, oh, we're not actually getting good jobs after we deindustrialize. Yeah, We're either out of work permanently or semi-permanently, you know, going in and off the unemployment rolls or in and out of disability or in and out of crap jobs um, or we're being sorted into – Service jobs that, you know, theoretically could pay more, but certainly don't Yeah, uh, and just don't have the um, organized labor capacity at present that industrial labor used to. So, you know, I, I try to think about these ideas that stick around as things that hold together a particular political economic uh, yeah. hegemony situation, whatever. Um, and so then the question becomes like, what is each part of that coalition's investment in that particular set of ideas? Yeah. Um, what do they get out of it? And you know, if their incentives change or if the coalitions change, yep. how might it be different? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: This is really nice. I mean, I think this is kind of how I've come to see, like, innovation speak and, um, you know, like, higher ed administrators, too. I mean, there's a certain... Like, what I like about your picture is you have this hegemonic thing going on and you have these elites. We're going to get into... By the way, like, r- listeners should realize know that we're kind of, just as a way of kind of orientation, we're kind of talking about chapter one, in a sense, right now, about the discovery of the digital, digital divide. Um, but I think... Um, what I like is the hustle picture, right? So you have this certain elite, yes. elite thing going on, but then you have these institutions that are kind of like you know they have their own interests, and sometimes it's just you know for these folks strategically it's helpful in all kinds of ways as you lay out for different reasons depending on the kind of institution to talk in this way to kind of reinforce the idea, right? So there's gonna kind of like hustle picture that's built into your picture of neoliberalism or something like that. Is that is that fair?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think it's. A- I say this pretty often is like they really, the executives really do read all those airport books. Yeah, sure. They, they really do read like, you know, 10 rules for life or whatever. Yeah. Um, And it's in part because the other people in the guest lounge, you know, the United club members or whatever at the airport are also reading those books. And you need to be able to talk to those people when you need to renovate your library, yeah. to, you know, make a deal with the state house yeah. to, you know, those kind of things. So it is, a, it is the creation of a shared culture, yeah. um, that gets used for all sorts of instrumental ends.
1: I love it, dude. It's so good. All right. Now I want to, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, the first ch- chapter, which you've already kind of gotten into Clinton White House and before the Clinton White House, there's these set of actors you call the Atari Democrats. Um, so why don't you, I mean, part of what you're you're talking about, as you've already outlined in this chapter, is the discovery of what we call the digital divide, right? So tell us a bit about the Atari Democrats and like, how the, they discover digital divide, if you want to put it that way. Or you can put it however
0: you want to. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, and, and to be clear, this is a name they give themselves. Like, it is, like, yeah, classic, yeah, yeah. like... Yeah. Um, you know, like the, them all doing the Macarena, at the 1996 DNC, like they're, they're always going to choose the corniest option because that's, you know, that's who they are. Um, and so who are these people? All right. So mid seventies, the, the wheels come off the bus for, you know, a million different reasons. You talk about the gold standard, You talk about, uh, you know, the end of, uh, industrialization talk about like putting down anti-colonial social movements the world over. Um, but the, the post-war political economic system just stops working. Yeah. And so there is a large amount of people who are being uh, rendered surplus by these economic transitions. And for the resurgent right especially the Reagan Republicans, they, uh, have a relatively easy answer to this problem, which is law and order. You know, if there, there are people who don't mm-hmm. fit, mm-hmm. then we will lock them up and throw away the key. Um, this is where the welfare queen discourse comes from this, right. is where, the, right. you know, like telling New York to, to stick it, you can go bankrupt comes from, um, And, you know, at a certain level, there's a a great deal of contradiction between this and something like mourning in America. So at the same time, the neoliberal right is also saying like, there is unlimited opportunity here. Anyone who works hard in America will be able to find a place in the new economy. Um, and that like endless opportunity would seem to contradict, okay, step out of line once you're in a cage, yep. but I, I think there is, you know, as always on the American right, a certain kind of like atavistic, like zeal in just locking people up. Like it feels good, yeah. but they don't really worry about that contradiction. And it, it seems to be very popular with the rest of America. So, you know, two straight landslides for Reagan, um, wipe out the new deal, um, democratic coalition in response the democrats need to figure out something else to do and they are they come to represent a different class coalition or at least shed the other parts of that class coalition that had carried them through the new deal era and so they do two things they recruit a new set of donors a new set of money at the top mm. this is um People with a global political outlook, um, people who are very interested in high technology and so need some sort of federal support um, for Mm. R&D, people who uh, want to make global trade deals happen to ensure that English uh, remains the language of commerce, um, to ensure Mm -hmm. that we maintain our kind of export economy that is competing and struggling against Japan and Germany. So it's a lot of people from Goldman or MCI or HP or Mm. Apple, Mm. like John Scully. These are the people who are recruited to the new Democratic Leadership Council, Mm. along with folks like um, Gephardt Gore, um, these kinds of folks. And at the same time, they're also very much changing the base of the party. You know, the people who are most uh, active in the Democratic Party the people that the party is um, most trying to recruit, uh, either to run or to vote. Um, and those folks look very different from the New Deal coalition. These are white people like me. Um, they're uh, highly educated. They're usually working in office parks, often in the suburbs, mm-hmm. Route 128 in Massachusetts, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, Silicon Valley. Um, they rise through the ranks in their job, not through any kind of like uh, trade association or a union, but through their education and credentials. You call them the
1: creative class. That's what you call them, right?
0: <laughs> yes, I'm very invested in the creative class. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I think there is, you know, in part, what I'm trying to do here is is to like say that there, yeah, there is like a sociological basis for like yeah. this new political coalition. It's just that we often get like the um, causal direction wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 You know. Um, so those people are coming around, and they, you know, are very against certain aspects of the Republican agenda. Uh, for example, like um, very, very invested in um, equality of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you you scratch a little bit and see that these folks are also very against um, any kind of formal redistributive measures, especially the things that would touch them. Um, so new affordable housing, great. New affordable housing in my neighborhood, not so much. Um, you know, more funding for schools, great. Two way busing to integrate our system schools, oh heaven forfend! You know, like that's, and I think there have been a lot of great recent historians, especially Lily Geismer, who's who's written really well on on the politics of this particular white um, cohort that ends up taking over the Democratic Party, and they uh, come back to power and begin this long nineteen nineties that we may not have yet exited, uh, because they resolve that contradiction. In the Republican story about America, you know, that contradiction between unlimited opportunity on the one hand and exacting punishment on the other. And they do so by commercializing the Internet. Mm -hmm. So the voter base and the donor base are both um, much more invested in the Internet in the 1980s than most Americans are because most Americans can't see it or touch it. Um, And. Al Gore had long wanted to privatize the internet, finally gets his shot in the 90s. And the pitch that the Democrats give is this thing will connect everybody to the global labor market. You know, wherever Mm -hmm. this thing touches, you will have the opportunity for a good job. Yeah. And so that makes the privatization of the internet an anti-poverty measure. And that means that we always have to make sure that we remember that technology policy and poverty policy are happening together. Because the exact same time that the Clintons are saying, well, these people who are left out of the internet, um, those people are a drag on national productivity. You know, they yeah. need to get online if they refuse to get online, that's a sign that they're not particularly productive. And so then we can turn to the more carceral wing of the state yeah, yeah, yeah. at the same time that that is happening in these, um, discovering the divide reports from, uh, falling through the net in the, um. NTIA as, as well as like the whole kind of NGO world that that births. At the same time that is happening in the mid nineties, we are also ending welfare as we know it.
1: Yeah, we totally. are
0: also uh, deregulating all telecommunications markets to give us really expensive, slow internet in the U S we are also on a prison building boom. These things are happening at the exact same time with the exact same people. And that hegemony is held together by this class. These these Atari Democrats who really do think that expanding this world um, will lock everyone into a very particular kind of labor market that suits our very particular needs, but maybe not everybody else's. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that way, I'm I'm reading the uh, Internet policy as part and parcel of the um, success of neoliberal hegemony, which really needed Clinton to happen. You know, you don't get that hegemony just with Reagan. Because, you know, half the country is fighting against it. It really takes Clinton to cement that as common sense for everybody.
1: Can you help me understand something that's, I mean, it's part of what you just said, but it's also even more background uh, than the way you just put it, which is that I've been trying to understand recently um, how the, the good old Dems got so wedded to... Education as the solution to policy or economic problems, basically, and um, and part of it is in your moment, but I also see it a bit before. So my example would be I've been following Robert Reich, the mm-hmm. you know, like the, you know, yeah. in the early '80s, he's doing a kind of like um, industrial policy stuff, right? Because it's all about it's about the worries of the '70s and melting deindustrialization, all that kind of stuff. Education's already in there a little bit, but in, by the mid eighties, even before the internet really comes online and that becomes his focus, which it does become his focus, already that education for him and I think for others is like the answer to all these economic problems, like including inequality. And part of the, so if, even if I wanna play out kinda like neoclassical whatever economics, I can play like mainstream economics and look like, if you, in, if you improve human capital, you will have more startups, you know, you'll have more entrepreneurial activity, you'll have more innovation, you'll have more change, that'll create more jobs, so eventually you'll have bounty, right? But how much are you, it's not sure. that, right? And so, like, the question is, like, wh- where is their vision of, like, creating jobs? Because it's like, you can, this is what happens, right? We encourage people to go to college, by the mid-2000s, by the 2000s, definitely by the 2010s, the Wages of college grads are stagnating because we're overproducing grads for jobs that are like don't fucking exist, right? And so I don't know. I, just how do you understand that? Because it's like in your book, but I also just wanted to just at, like ask you about it, you know?
0: Yeah, I hear you. And I, I think there may be some, you know, I mean, there may be different social mechanisms for like the elites yeah. as opposed to like the rest of us. But um, yeah, I mean, that, you know, we could say that like the this naive empiricist belief in the power of education is. Uh, you know, you could maybe say like, okay, give them a good faith read in the 80s and 90s. But by the time 2009 rolls around, like the wage premium for education has fallen through the roof, it's uh, yeah. fallen through the floor. It's, you know, it's very clear that this is not the kind of thing that's going to make, um, especially racial and economic inequality change. <laughs> uh, and, you know, but we're still, we're still addicted to it. Yeah. Um, part of the way that I, I, um, explain that, especially at the level of, um, of the helping professions, like the Mm -hmm. the people providing direct services, like teachers and, and and librarians is that, um, those, the people doing the help, um, are trying to make the people getting the help look more like them. Like that's how those Mm -hmm. are institutions function right now. Uh And Uh there is a certain, um, Racial and class bias to that process. Yeah. Where, you know, it seems to have worked for me. Yeah. I went to school. I got a degree. I got a good job. So maybe that's replicable. Yeah. And even if, as a nice white person, I know in the abstract that, well, a lot of it's down to dumb luck. Uh Or the, you know, the wealth inherited from segregated housing markets.
1: Or just um, inheritance in
0: general. Yeah, totally.
1: Like capital just getting handed down. Sure.
0: And all that is happening. Yeah. But our jobs, especially the helping professions, make us tell that story. Yeah. Because like we are supposed to, uh, you know, provide the next generation of students, Library patrons, whatever, with the opportunity that they need to survive. So yeah. I need to sell them on my biography. My biography is mobilized by the institution in which I work. So I think there, especially at that level, there is a um real investment in the in that story um, yeah. of of meritocracy. I, I call it a meritocratic mindset um, that is like deep in our helping institutions. In general, I think the um the propaganda is thicker the further you are away from the floor yeah. so like yeah, yeah, yeah. leaders of a variety yeah. of stripes are always going to be further away from the reality and are going to you know be more invested in these yeah. more simple you see, in like the world
1: economic forum they're very, very, really yeah. bought into this shit too so exactly like, yeah yeah
0: so yeah. i you know and then so then at that level i think there's a couple of other things going on one of them being that like um you know the thing that has plagued uh, every part of Western society since world war one, you know, we, we killed God and we don't know exactly what to replace him with. Um, hallelujah, Dan. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So I, I think, um, (laughs) for, especially for professional whites, um, yeah, the, one of the few remaining sources of moral legitimacy is education. Um, And, and it's not even really like actually doing education. It's the, the aesthetics of education, Totally, like, it's it's really about like having those books and, and the letters in the background. There's actually, I think, um, Tressie Cottom's book on, on, um, for-profit education is, is really good on this because like, she's talking about people who are, um, very invested in getting, uh, an incredibly abusive degree that will likely sentence them to extraordinary debt for the rest of their lives. And, you know, she's meeting like person after person who is saying, like, yeah, obviously this sucks. I know that it uh taking on a hundred thousand dollars in debt is stupid, but if I'm taking a hundred thousand dollars in debt on, that means it has to be legitimate. That means those letters have yeah, to yeah, mean yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that calculus of moral legitimacy is then imposed on everybody else because what else do we got? You know, yeah. where else are you supposed to go?
1: So I think we could talk. All fucking day long about all kinds of stuff. Uh, we could just keep going on and on, but I do want to give, I do want to give listeners like a little picture of your book. So, in the in the first chapter, you do a really good job of kind of spelling out this ideology, um, you know, or however we want to think of the digital divide and, and these other concepts, and, and you know the role of these elites, and um, you know, you you spell out this ideology really, really, really wonderfully, or hegemony, however we want to think about it. And then in the next three chapters, you give us kind of ethnographies of three different institutions, right? So we have a startup, we have a public library, and we have you know a charter school. So which we can think can, it's a private organization technically, but also plays a kind of semi-public role, right? So why don't we first, just first start with this startup and like what what does it show us about the picture you wanna you wanna draw out?
0: Yeah, so I mean, this is another place where um, the the project transformed over time. So what had seemed like a place where you know I wanted to see how the other half lives mm-hmm. um, became, as I was uh, writing the book, much more of a story about an ideal type organization, because if there is one kind of organizational form that all of our offices and cultural institutions and governments have been forced to like remake themselves on the basis of it's, it's startup life, you know, like, and, and that, that juice is, I, I think starting to run out. Yeah. Um, I think so too. More so than it was even three years ago. Yeah. I think um, that's right. But especially in the moment of, of the book, which is, which largely takes place from 2011 to 2015, um, this is still very much dominant. And, and I think it was incredibly important in the wake of the 2008-2009 recession um, because it was uh, part of the recovery engine for cities that were very much devastated and needed people to take up real estate um, and needed like some kind of stick to poke their government public institutions yep. with. So I'm interested in this startup that I call InCrowd as a... Um, an example of doing it right, you know, according to this uh, political common sense about the access doctrine, you know, these are the people that seem to have it right. These are the organizations that seem to be able to keep themselves alive. And then that rubric is then imposed on other people. Yeah. So I needed to figure out what the ideal type looked like first. And so I spend, you know, the, the chapter moves back and forth between these more, um, General experiences of the DC tech community, which is, you know, pretty similar to a lot of other startup scenes outside of, um, New York and San Francisco that are, you know, trying to grow themselves in part on this Richard Florida model of like, you know, if you build more bike paths and coffee shops, then wealthy people will come here. Yoga studios, exactly. Uh, and so what I'm interested in is how that becomes common sense and, it, and yeah. especially how it works at different scales. So mm-hmm. the um, that chapter gets bigger as it goes. And, I, and I'm really trying to explain how this um, startup mindset, this uh, belief in social mobility through technology works for yep. individuals, for organizations, and for a city as a whole. And the thing that I land on is this um, – orientation that's really really important to tech and that they take very seriously which is the um thinking about the pivot yes. talk about the pivot dan so this um you know this this word has been in circulation in a lot of different places but it comes mostly out of this um book by eric rice reese uh called the lean startup which comes out in I want to say 2010, uh, and was very hot when I was doing, um, my field work. Uh, and the lean startup is about taking some nominal lessons from lean production. Uh, you know, Toyotaism. uh, the, you know, having just an absolute minimum of inventory, uh, and doing like constant reassessment of, of your, um, production methods and of your supply chains to be able to like run as as close to zero as possible. Um, And instead applying that not just to manufacturing or the labor process, but like to the entire culture of the firm, identity of the firm, setup of the firm. So their proposition is like every... Um, startup will have at some point a couple of pivotable moments, you know, these really yep. gut check moments where the data is coming in and your current approach looks wrong. Right. And the way you tell a startup from another business is not um, the kind of products it produces, but its ability to adapt to radical change. Yep. So a startup has to be able to pivot, has to be able to look at the incoming data and say like, we need to be something completely different. Yep. And then to change themselves around that. And so the company that I spent the most time at it in crowd was a business to consumer company at the beginning of its life that wasn't really working out. And the way they went towards success and, and a fairly significant wealth was to become a business to business company. They basically made catering software and then found obviously that it's much more profitable to help like hotels cater than it is to help individuals. Yeah. And, uh, that, Identity then, you know, which that pitch that they were making to investors then filtered down into how, who they hired, um, the setup of their office, yeah. the, uh, the software itself, their entire outlook. And that is something that Rice argues, I think correctly, is like the identifying mark of startup. You know, if, if yeah. startup means one thing, it is this um, heroic ideal where you can not just like survive economic change and economic uncertainty, but like kind of master it and then surf the wave. And there are a mm. lot of reasons why startups can do that, but other folks can't, you know, and, you know, a startup yeah. by its nature does not have a lot of fixed capital investment. There's no plant. Um, so you don't have to like reshuffle stuff around that yes. much. Yes, of course. It's a, it's a fairly small organization that can yeah. hire and rehire. They often have like, um, no revenue but a ton of investment so like they have like the funds the what they call the runway that is able to like readjust this kind of stuff and so i was really interested in seeing how that played out throughout the um the organization and then for the city at large because the pitch that the city made to startups and that the startups in turn made to the city was that we will help the city pivot you know what you what you see (laughs) us doing we will help you do if you you know Basically, if you give us tax write-offs, then we will replace the human capital stock of your city. Yeah. Um, we will replace the you know, unproductive black and brown service workers with white hipsters um, who are doing this kind of thing. And then we will slowly take over the rest of your cultural institutions um, to make them more dynamic, entrepreneurial, and innovative. Uh, and that at the end of the day, like. It's it's really just a an excuse for gentrification that like um, mm-hmm. it allows us to imagine that um, you know tax handouts to real estate developers are or universities in, or universities or yeah. or coffee shops are an investment in productive capacity yeah 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 because at the end of the day startups don't really need plant um, they need a space yeah. to type. Um, so yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, that at the end of the day, this is kind of putting a hopeful, optimistic, productive gloss on something that was going to happen anyway, which is that, you know, in the wake of a recession, capital is going to try to raise the rent gap, um, on devalued assets and, and bring in a different kind of people. Uh, and what The thread that carries through the rest of the book, as I I trace how that idea then moves between different institutions, often with the very like the same people or the same technologies, you know, um, one of the advantages of doing an ethnography in in one city is to see how people and money and and devices move from startup land to libraries to schools, stuff like that, um, is we start to see that like the rest of the city gets enrolled in this project, but it doesn't fit in the same way. Yeah, Like a school can't be a startup. A library can't be a startup. Oh, but they because, can pivot. But they can try. You know, they can try. <laughs> yeah. and, and and not just they can try. They have to try. Right. Like their future right, right, is uh, predicated on the attempt to be a startup, even as everyone knows the entire time yeah. that, well, we're a library. We have to take in everyone who comes through the door right we cannot suddenly decide to be something else you know we're we're a charter school and we'll we'll talk about specifically about the politics of charter schools but like even then these like privately managed public institutions are not going to change based on like the grades that come in in the middle of a year like they're going to try that chapter is a lot about that try but at the end of the day they can't like you know, the, the school focused on learning to code will not suddenly become a Chinese language immersion program in the middle of the year. Yeah. 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 Based on the quarterly revenue projections, whereas in startup land, that's normal.
1: There's this hilarious video I used, uh, in my innovation and context class before. And it was a video of our university president, um, talking about Virginia tech. Right. And he's a guy, he just uses a lot of like hip terms, like that are cool with that class. And, um, but he doesn't, he doesn't really think about what, they're, what they mean. And it's so awkward because he's actually quite a bad speaker. And um, so he ta- like pauses in the middle of his talk. And he says something like, um, and doing this has made us more pause, looks down at his iPad, agile. And he's like, uh, you know, he's talking about like this giant state bureaucracy. Right. right, It's not a it's not a fucking startup, bro. You know? it's, yeah. not, it's not. And we're not making software. We have heavy capital and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's so many disanalogies. Right. And yet, I mean, you know, and at the same time, universities have to try just like you're saying. I mean, we could there could be a university chapter because they're, they have to play the same game in some ways you know
0: yeah i mean the book is intensely autobiographical <laughs> like right, you, you right. know like the what's the story of like um digital humanities for example i mean there's obviously lots of like really interesting research that's come out of that field yeah. but for the most part this is like a survival strategy for totally i agree with you
1: yes um let's talk about um So I feel like we've said a bit about the library and mostly I want people to go read your very good book. So I don't want to give them everything. Why don't we talk about the politics of charter schools for a couple minutes before we kind of
0: like bring things together at the end, so go for it. Sure, Um, so charters are, you know, at. in, in setting up the book in this kind of comparative process where I look at these different institutions and see how people and, and money and ideas flow between them um, is really about seeing how well that idea of the pivot, this idea of the access doctrine fits these places. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, um, but nonetheless, they have to keep trying. So eventually right. in the in the public institutions and in libraries and schools, I, I talk about this process of bootstrapping where... Yeah. This intense organizational restructuring happens over and over again, precisely because you can't meet the goals that you've been politically assigned to meet. Yeah. Like, obviously, uh, school cannot be responsible for poverty reduction for all the reasons that we've talked about. Nonetheless, we are going to make them responsible for it because we have killed all of the other institutions that do so. Yeah. Um, and because we don't want to directly create jobs or give people money. Um, so they fall, the schools fall into this role and we punish them when they don't live up to it. And that leads to this constant process of organizational restructuring um, that they uh, is normal for startups, but just does not fit what a school or a library does. And I think, you know, public libraries have been many different things in American history, yeah. uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. charter schools are native to this moment. Yes, You know, our charter schools, you know, again, like there have been something like charters for a lot of American history. We think about like Montessori schools, but as like the publicly or I'm sorry, privately managed public assets that are intended as a poverty reduction measure are tended as an entrepreneurial market where like the best model wins out measured in test scores. Like that thing is really native to the 90s and 2000s. So you know, we can think about, um, you know, as I'm doing field work. Uh, at the end of um, Michelle Ree's reign in, in DCPS, you know, she's uh, this is our um, who was the school's chancellor here. Um, and she is pictured on the cover of Time magazine with a big broom uh, cleaning up American public schools. She then becomes a star of um, the Waiting for Superman charter propaganda oh, documentary God. that um, Obama airs at the White House yep. with uh, a bunch of the kids who were starred there. That's happening in D.C. and there's like, you know, I think fairly uh, be fair to say a, a revolt against that Mayor Fenty and that Chancellor Rhee um, because they were closing schools left and right. They were yeah. firing teachers left and right, um, largely based on these, uh, you know, phony um, uh, evaluation measures that were right. uh, tying teachers um, pay and, and promotion to student score test scores. Uh, th- voters got really fed up with that in large part because, you know, not just like closing schools is obviously a threat that everyone uh, feels, but um, right. DC did not have a uh, comprehensive public university until the eighties when UDC was formed. Um, so really the only um, route to the professional class was through a teaching degree mm-hmm. and Uh, black DC very much perceived the closure of schools and the attack on teachers unions as a threat against the black middle-class voted these people out. Yeah. So those dynamics are very specific to the present moment. And I wanted to really zoom in on um, just like the startup, uh, a school that like represented the best possible instance of these trends where people were giving it a good faith effort, were really trying to help, um, and were not engaging in any of like the, you know, fi- financial chicanery or like TED Talk BS that like so dominates the sector. So it was very important to me to look at like, you know, a a what I felt was a good business, good library, good school, um, to really look at um, mm-hmm. these things in the in their best possible case. And I, you know, I would feel comfortable sending my daughter to the school that I called Du Bois in the book. Like it's it's a good school. It doesn't, you know, exist in the same form as it did when I studied it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a nice place where people really were trying. And what happens there is that the the thing that people were recruited to try really hard on this like v- racial justice mission. Yeah. Um, butts up against the uh, political mission of the school, which is Mm -hmm. raise test scores, get kids into college, save them from the underclass. Um, It's intensely racialized with a largely white um, teachers dealing with largely black and Latino um, students. Uh, And, you know, what happens over time is that the, uh, they are really forced to give up this racial justice, accepting of everyone mission and become a much more competitive, disciplinary, yeah. um, professionalized space because their regulators, their donors, and their school board need to see year over year improvement in test scores. They need to yeah. see the numbers go up.
1: Yep, and yep, they yep. need
0: to see that the use of information technology, primarily these laptops that every kid was given are, are part of that story. Yep. And that causes everybody a lot of stress, you know, teachers, yeah. Oh, yeah. teachers start quitting, teachers start collapsing. Students really freak out that like, Hey, I don't really want to go to college. There's not really room for me here. Um, and the whole thing, uh, as we get towards the the first senior class that, that I was um, spent a year with, um, the whole thing really starts to feel like the school uh, has changed. Like it is not the school that everyone signed up to either go to work in mm-hmm. or to attend. Like they yeah. pivoted, they did it, um, and they ended up leaving a lot of people behind.
1: It's fascinating, man. It's it's um. I mean, I I can hear your um autobiographical story about how these institutions stitch together. but still one of the things I really like about your book is how you let each institution be it each institution. I mean this is a kind of methodological thing you do and you try to understand the space they're working in and and yet like this the in some sense like a master logic still plays out but it has like these nuances depending on what you know what your industry is, what the the history is there, what the background is. And so, yeah, I mean, just hats off to you. I think it's a it's a cool part of the book that you really go all the way on it.
0: I, I appreciate that. It, it really was a goal to try to, you know, t- to be a good Marxist and pursue like an imminent <laughs> critique. Yeah. Like I, I, it is very important to me that I address these places on their own terms and follow those logics on their own terms. Yeah. Rather than critiquing it from the outside, which is important. Like we need like, you know, yeah. normative and political alternatives to whatever the dominant yeah. vision is. But to really understand what that dominant vision is, how it works, where it came from, is we have to not believe in it, but like follow it to its logical conclusion. So it was really sure. important for me to like, um, understand these folks on their terms. And then, you know, that's built into the ethnographic process in a way. Like, you know, I always had people like looking at my drafts who were, you know, I was um, yep. in the field with that kind of thing.
1: Right on, man. Um. So, I mean, one one way... I. I wanted to ask you about why it's the politics of hope, but I also thought you could just put your, some cards on the table and say like, you know, when you think like, when you think about better roads forward, I'm not going to ask you what gives you hope, Dan, because I don't, I don't know if that's even an appropriate question, but like, you know, like what, when you think about better roads forwards on these issue, like what do we need to do, man? how do we cut out the bullshit and like start getting real about what we're facing here?
0: Yeah. Yeah people uh, start being real. Um, I, I'm i actually pretty comfortable talking about what, uh, the what is to be done question um, in part because, you know, I, I like the book. I believe in it and I think I'm right. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. the so why hope in the present? So the the subtitle of the book has this political economy of hope. Um, and in part, that's because these institutions of social reproduction are, uh, hinge to, or have their their compass oriented to, um, future labor markets and that our, our current work will bring, um, success in those, in that economic future. So they're always tied towards that future orientation. Interpersonally, the way that, that is represented in kind of like the everyday work of, of going to school or going to the library are these, um, intensely vertical relationships between um, the helping professional and the person there to be helped, between the librarian and the patron, between the student and the teacher. You know, even as like, obviously, there are many other things that go on in these very diverse institutions, The the script that we're taught to read is very much, I have the stuff and the knowledge, I will give you the stuff and the knowledge, and then you will survive. That may not work, but that is the script that we are supposed to read. Yeah. Uh, that means that these places are um, intensely individualizing you know there's yeah. we've yeah, yeah, we yeah. really cut across any kind of like possible community fabric in these places uh, and that means that when push comes to shove and either party the helper or the help wants to resist the things that are happening in these institutions, they often fall short individually um, because mm-hmm. they just don't have the juice to take it that far. So the, um, one of the big examples I give in the book as I open the concluding chapter is um, in 2017, uh, Martin Luther King Library, the central branch that I followed around for chapter three, yeah. uh, is, is finally closing and getting a, a long overdue renovation. Um, But in so doing, they closed what is effectively the largest homeless day shelter in the city. You know, hundreds of people dropped off every day um, or or on the walkover because it's a central location. You're generally not allowed to stay in homeless shelters during the day. And, you know, there's no public space in the city. Like, where are you supposed to go if you don't buy anything? Um, The library is really it. And no one was happy with the closure. Um, Librarians' jobs had suffered because they had been oriented towards this more you know, training orientation for knowledge work. They had been charged with doing much more policing for like kicking out people who weren't being productive. Um, patrons were upset about getting kicked out of the library because they had nowhere else to go. Yeah. Um, but they couldn't do anything about it. These two sides were were split up. Um, there was like a meager protest of like maybe two dozen people at the closure, but the city just kind of rolled right over them. Mm-hmm. In contrast, we could think about something like uh, the teachers, the wave of teacher strikes that took over the country in 2018, um, and that we saw to a lesser extent in 2020 in support of the movement for Black Lives. And uh, all, a lot of these things have their roots in the Chicago Teachers Union and the Radical Core Caucus took over in 2010. And what you see in those places is, you know, something that I've said in in union organizing for education, which is like my working conditions are students' learning conditions. Yeah. I need them. They need me. The degradation of my job degrades their um, public space. The degradation of their public space degrades my job. I have a strategic position in the uh, labor process or in in the mode of production. Whereas like, you know, if I don't show up to teach, nothing gets taught. Um, They have, greater numbers there's more of them um and they have uh political legitimacy that i don't have you know like when when teachers strike the first thing everyone says is oh they're hurt um, green yeah, yeah. unions are hurting the kids but if we follow like what core did in, in chicago and continues to do and we're organizing with our students um with their parents with other workers in the neighborhood we're all in it together because we all really do need the school because the school yeah. is you know in reality not just a place where you get computer school is where you get food where you get yeah. friends where you get translation yeah. services where you get care where you play basketball it's, it's everything yeah. and we all deserve that we all deserve all the parts of the good life uh and those political relationships where we march together you know where like yeah. LAUSD teachers are um striking in part because they their students are being constantly frisked every day um yeah. you know chicago teachers are striking because they want to re- um, divert some of the city's real estate development fund into schools, you know, where they don't have working air conditioning. Uh, that is not a vertical relationship. That is not me saying like, the only way you're going to survive is by being like me. That is instead saying like, we're different. We're not the same. Our fights are not the same, but our fights are intersecting at the same place in this building. Mm -hmm. That's a horizontal relationship because I need you and you need me that is very different from what the access doctrine is teaching that there's only like, you know, that you have this slim life life raft to be able to survive. Instead, it's saying like, we need to fight together. It's not about the future. It's about the present. It's a very day-to-day thing. Um, you know, so that, that really is my pitch for how we get over this. Like, I I think like there's a lot of other things going on other kind of like strategic sectors of the economy, like, you know, logistics or whatever. Um, but I, you know, I, I do sincerely believe that our soviets will be in these centers for social reproduction in healthcare in education um in public libraries these things that Mm -hmm. everyone needs and knows um and that we can use these places we're already powerful there we're more powerful than we think and we can use them as like a as a staging ground for a broader fight for liberation because they connect into other sectors of the community uh and i i you know, if you had told me in, in two thousand and eight that we would have seen teacher strikes in Oklahoma and West Virginia and Arizona at the same time, I I would have asked what you were smoking. Like yeah, it, yeah, I, yeah, I, totally. I I cannot yeah. imagine that. Yeah. And now that's just the you know, it's a it's just a fact. Like that happened. We know it can happen, so we can do it again and we can do it harder. Yeah. And and you know, that's my pitch, is to to throw away that kind of like cruel optimism of like, you know, maybe you can survive yeah, 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 yeah. in the future if you learn to code and to focus much more on the present of like, you know, I need a space to nap during the day. I wish I could do that in the library, but they kick me out. Let me talk to the librarian about that and we'll see how we can figure it out together.
1: Yeah, man. I like it a lot. I totally agree with you. Uh, I won't even get into how different this is, what you're saying is than so much shit that gets talked about in STS. Um, that would That's a whole other podcast we can do. But, um, why don't you give the people like, uh, some sense of where you're heading next?
0: Sure. Um, so, you know, if there's one question about the book and, um, that, that runs through the book in like very Marxist terms, it's like, what is a socially necessary worker? What is, you know, if socially necessary labor time is, is what um, produces the value of any given commodity, then there's one commodity above all others, which is labor power. How do we define socially necessary labor power? Uh, and you know that's in part what these institutions of social reproduction are doing. They are producing people fit for the current mode of production. Um, that doesn't mean that it works. That doesn't mean that it wins. It just means it's that's how the glue is being held together right now. Um, and so in future work, um, you know, the next book is is going to be largely oriented around that question at the level of the firm, and saying like, okay, how do firms decide who belongs, you know, who to hire or who to kick out? How do you measure people um, to and decide whether they fit in the organization, whether they're performing well and whether to get rid of them? Um, because, you know, especially in places like academe, whenever we want to say whenever we want to get rid of somebody or justify not including them, it's always this language about fit. Yeah. And fit is not necessarily productivity. It's culture, yeah, it's yeah, attitude, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. skills, so more It's all than this other yeah. thing. And eventually, especially for large distributed organizations, you need to establish some kind of rubric for that. And that's all that, like a personality test is, yeah. or a you know an online job application, um, or an H one B visa. These are all different instruments we use to kind of standardize fit across um, broad organizations. Um, so yeah, I want to write a big um but kind of episodic book about the different artifacts that we use to standardize fit you know Mm -hmm. things like visa programs things like online job applications um uh things like we were talking about before we started recording like the um gs system and the feds uh and so that's where i'll be for the next couple years uh and then you know it's been Time to start doing fun stuff that's not the book, which is one of the great um, joys of living in a more kind of collaborative work environment in high school. So like I'm working with a colleague in education about uh, student athletes, uh, personal data, um, what kind huh. of how it's collected, what they learn from it or not. Um, so, you know, like take like guys in the football team are all amateur data scientists. They're super smart. They're constantly doing fairly complicated statistics in their head. No one talks about them as people with that level of expertise. Rarely right. are they allowed to even see the other side of the um, clipboard. Um, so I'm really interested in how <laughs> uh, that data is used organizationally in a very yeah. weird type of workplace. Um, And that's another um, project that's been really fun that we're going to be continuing on for the next couple of years. That's cool, dude. I love that one too.
1: Good work, Dan. Uh, Everyone should check out your book. And thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today, dude.
0: It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much,
1: Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum coordinator and digital humanities specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.